0: its flow, and this is my impression of a drill instructor directing a musical. <whistles> Ten hut! Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins?
1: Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save.
0: Lift, 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 and step Ball change.
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company Affiliates.
0: Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. Everybody and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the Tee. I'm your host Chris Mascaro and today I have the honor of talking with the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Peter has interviewed every major golf figure of the 20th century. No one on the planet knows more about the history of the game of golf than Peter does. And away from the game of golf, he doesn't get enough recognition or credit for the voiceover work he's done, particularly his masterful narration of the baseball film, When It Was a Game 2, one of the best baseball films you'll ever watch. I consider Peter a mentor, so I am so excited to have him join me this morning, and he'll be along in just a moment. But before we get started, we want to kick off the show like we do every week by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. Thank you. Thank you for your daily sacrifices and all you do to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank those of you who serve or have served in every branch of the military and public service. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. We also want to thank everyone listening in on iHeartRadio as well as great radio sites across the Internet like Spreaker.com, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player.fm, and Radio. We also want to give a special shout-out to our good friends, Mike Novak, Ben Kerr, and Mark Modesky, and the rest of the great staff over at LastWordOnSports.com. Check them out online and on Twitter. Their site is absolutely fantastic and contains great content across every sport. Their staff of writers are wonderful. You're going to love going to their site every day for your sports news. If you haven't been there yet, check it out and then bookmark it. Again, LastWordOnSports.com. And if someone is dragging you to the mall or to the grocery store, if you're just tired of the same old, same old on your commute, download the apps player.fm or Stitcher and take us with you everywhere you go. Let us give you something fun to focus on while you're out and about. And our show is sponsored by the great folks over at Kyven Foods. Former Bengals and Falcons tight end Reggie Kelly has created a wonderful array of products, salsas, sauces, spices all natural, and are going to liven up every meal that you put in uh, on your recipe, you know, on your dinner table, out at your tailgate parties. They're fantastic. Check them out online. You can find them at kyvan82.com. That's K-Y-V-A-N, the number 82, dot com. All right. Now, back with us on the Kyvan Foods guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Peter, like I said, has interviewed almost every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. In the mid 90s, he did voiceover work for HBO Sports. He moved on to become the primary broadcasting talent when the Golf Channel launched back in January of 1995. He's also hosted his own show on Sirius XM's PGA Channel. You can hear him hosting shows on uh, on uh, Revolution or for Revolution Golf. The Peter Kessler Show, which is available on iTunes. And when I tell you this, I mean it sincerely. I've had the honor of having Peter on this show a couple of times, most recently back in April uh, when he was gracious enough to co-host the show with me when we talked with Gary Player and Billy Casper. Now, I've heard NBA players talk about uh, how when they're playing with or against Michael Jordan, how they get distracted because they get caught up in admiring him and they sort of lose focus on actually playing the game. Well, I found myself admiring Peter's style and and enjoying how great he is at conducting conversations. And I forget that I'm supposed to be hosting this show. He's a broadcasting genius, and I am absolutely thrilled that he has taken time out of his morning to be back again with
1: me. Peter, thanks for being here. You read it just as I wrote it. Perfect. Good morning.
0: (laughs) I do what I can.
1: How are you, buddy?
0: I'm fantastic, Peter. Again, thank you
1: for being here
0: um so let's get started peter you know the, the the hottest topic around golf over the last you know couple of weeks has been the Ryder cup and what the u.s team needs to do differently or better to be able to compete against the european team you know, going back to 85 europe is 10-4-1 in this competition what do you think needs to change
1: I just think it needs to be a little bit more organized the week of. I don't think there's overhauls necessary. I don't think that pods get anything done. I think, you know, in the case of the '08 8 victory for the U.S. side under Paul Azinger, our guys putted better the last 90 minutes, and it was a European team that was kind of in transition if you look at the makeup of the team, not one of their stronger ones. It didn't have anything with grouping these people together during the week and coddling them. These aren't promising junior players. These are the finest players in the world, literally. You can't help them make more putts or tell them if they should take the hard five, you know, or the soft four. So, you know, I think the captain can't do a lot to help. I think he can do some things to hurt. But I think Azinger just happened to have a situation where his guys did a little better than the other team. I think the what ended up happening here is, they were one dinner short, the American side, of having this organized properly. And by that I mean, as we've come to understand it, there was a dinner early in the week of the Ryder Cup with the American players and, of course, their captain, Tom Watson, where Watson solicited the opinions and writing of his 12 players as to who they would like to play with. Eleven of the 12 had responses they didn't then have the next dinner where Watson had would have had the day to sort out the little pieces of paper, put everything on a flip chart, bring it into dinner and say, okay, here's what it looks like you guys want to do. Can we go around the table and play with this and make sure we've got it right? Oh, and a couple of other things, fellas. What if we have... A couple of our guys who play good golf early, but they go to the 18th hole a couple of times in a row. I'm thinking maybe I would sit that group out on, say, the Saturday morning if they've gone to play 36 holes, win, lose, or draw, but presumably because they played well and either halved or won their matches. So let's think about who we would put in for various teams that we would put out who will have gone the route on Friday. Also, guys, what do you think let's Who do you think the wildest drivers are? Who should we really think about not having be foursomes so that they don't have to play the other guy's t ball so let's rank let's let's all together rank our best and worst drivers and then see if we can come up with a formula that makes the most sense Oh, and if somebody's like exhausted, you know after thirty six holes or after fifty four holes. Let's have a contingency plan because, for example, if Phil and Keegan play together on Friday morning, Friday afternoon, and then they if they had played Saturday morning and, said, and Phil said, take me out this afternoon, you don't have to take out Keegan, too. Keegan's still a young guy. He can play again. He doesn't have to play with Phil. That just happens to be a pairing, but it's not the pairing that you're stuck with. And the other thing is have fun, play well. You'll probably remember this experience for the rest of your life, and it's great to be here with you and let's enjoy the week. I really don't believe there are other variables. I you know, I I've read everything that I can get my hands on. I I've, I've talked to a lot of folks, but those are the ones that I come up with. I mean, it's to me it's almost like somebody forced you to define golf in as few words as possible then maybe you'd come up with something like you have free hitting of a ball followed by holing out, and you have no interference by an opponent. To me, that would make up the three things that define golf relative to other games. And so in the Ryder Cup, I, too, think that you can, you know, really pare it down really pare it down to its essentials here and i don't see anything more complicated than the issues that i just laid out which never got resolved here it only played in tom watson's head and it went seat to the pants from that point forward i don't believe he listened to his assistant captains on friday or saturday I do think he listened to his assistant captains during the week after the bits of paper went around with regard to pairings. I think Stricker, you know, had a big hand in the Spieth-Reed pairing that Watson did not have on his list as something that he might do. So I think there was a couple of little bits of input that were forced onto Watson, but basically he was the same guy as a captain that he was as a player. You know, he's, like Ray Floyd or Arnold Palmer or Sam Snead or Byron Nelson or Ben Hogan. You know, guys who you think of as hard scrabble players. Hale Irwin comes to mind as that gritty kind of player. Uh, Some people would say Lanny Watkins. I don't think he was as solid as those other guys that I just mentioned. But Watson fit into that group. Tough tough guys internally, Trevino, and because of that, there's an onlyness and a loneliness that you have as a really great player that is a selfishness that pertains to what you have to do best to make you do the best that you can do. That kind of insular thinking where you're depending on you because you don't have coaches around and you don't have a group of teammates that thing where you're just depending on yourself doesn't necessarily lend itself to you being good to working with other people. You know, it's not a team sport, and there's an individual set of criteria as an individual playing the game that you end up adopting to. And Watson wasn't able to set enough of that aside, in my view, to be able to have, you know, a happy experience with his players. And the grittiness, is such that he believes that you dig it out, you just go get it. There's no, there's no putting the arms around the back. There's no, you know, tussling the hair. There's no putting the hands on the shoulders and say, you can do this. This is a man's game. You act like a man. You play like a man. There's no such thing as pods. There's only such a thing as playing better than the other guy. And that's what he expected out of his team. And he could have done that if he had just gotten to the point where they had done that last night of preparation now you know my ideas of preparation uh, only take a couple of minutes to outline and would only take those guys a couple of hours to come up with the perfect plan that's the variables they didn't if they had just done that nobody would have faulted the system they would have had a better chance to win and they might have had some better teams that they all collectively came up with on paper. But net-net, the other team played better. The other team appeared to be deeper. The other team chipped and putted better and kept the ball in play better and played the back nine better all the way through Friday through Sunday, played the back nine better all week. And I think the Americans slightly outplayed them on the front but got squished on the back nine. So all right. par- partially captain, mostly players, a little bit system.
0: Do you have any issues with the remarks that Phil Mickelson had at the uh, press conference afterwards?
1: It's a tricky thing. You know, sometimes I can't decide if Phil goes off half-cocked sometimes and thoughtful at other times. But this one I can't – I just feel like there was something, you know, very well planned here that he was looking for the opening to – dismantle watson in front of a group in hopes of doing two things in having people stop and wonder if we should have some changes and then secondarily uh through the passive aggressive nature of, of his comments he trashed watson as well so it served both purposes i believe i believe he was dying to have that moment you know and he knew he'd get it it's just that they tossed up the ball that he was hoping to have tossed, which is, you know, what will it take? And then he was, you know, he'd been wait praying to God, somebody <laughs> asked me what will it take? And he would have answered that anyway, no matter what he had been asked. He had been asked something different, like, what about the way you played, Phil? He would have immediately gone into that anyway, because he would have said, well, if we had done it Azinger's way, then I would have played Saturday, and I'm one of the greatest all players right. of all time. So... I think I think it I think he, there were two things going on, and both of them had preconceived motivation.
0: And talking about you know Ryder Cup controversies, you know the nineteen sixty nine Ryder Cup and the concession by Jack Nicholas to Tony Jacklin was a fairly unpopular move among uh, members of the U.S. team, particularly Captain Sam Snead. Remind our listeners about how about that match and how unpopular a decision it was with Captain Snead.
1: Well, you know, when you go back to the summer of 69, the late summer of 69, you've got Nicholas, who hadn't won a major in a couple of years, but would then go on the best five or six years of his career from 70 through 75 the next year. But he was still Jack and the best player in the game. Uh, Tony Jacklin had just won the British Open, you know, at Royal Litham and St. Anne's, and nobody had done that in 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 many decades an Englishman winning the, the open championship. So you had two wonderful players really at the top of their game playing in singles matches and the, uh, Ryder cup. And they had already played earlier a singles match and they were playing for the second time and they're walking off the 18th tee. And Jacqueline said to Nicholas, he said, I got to tell you, he said, I am so nervous and Nicholas looked at him and he said, So am I. Isn't it great? Isn't it great? <laughs> and uh and that was the thing about Jack, you know, and the thing about Tiger and a very few other players is when it really comes down to it, when it's when there's nine holes to play on Sunday afternoon, guys like Jack would say about that nine holes. You know, I was so excited to be in that position. Or Tiger would say, you know, that's what I live for is the last nine on Sunday. Most guys don't live for the back nine on Sunday. That's why you have so, you know, very few really great champions. So Nichols was one of those guys who really wanted the ball when it really counted. And, you know, obviously that was backed up by by his career. So here he is, you know. Nervous like every other golfer, but controlling it better maybe than any golfer who had ever played the game before. And he and Jacqueline get to the final green. And uh, Jack putted Jack putted first and knocks it uh, like five feet by. No, Jacqueline putted first, knocks it to two feet. Then Nicholas putts from a much closer distance and knocks it almost five feet by the hole. I mean, he had an actual putt to make, and he knocks his in. And without breaking stride or thinking about it for even a tenth of a second, just as he moved towards the hole, he just reached down with his right hand and picked up Jacqueline's marker and handed it to him. It was a nothing putt. Jacqueline had just won the British Open. He was not going to miss a two-footer on a green that with a speed of eight, slightly uphill, with no break. There wasn't anything there. Nicholas would not have given him a missable putt. Why would you give somebody a missable putt? Now, you know, that ended the Ryder Cup and a tie, and then the U.S. kept the, the cup because they had already retained it, and they they had it, and so a tie retains it. But Sneed, as the captain of the U.S. side, just went nuts and was really upset with Jack and said, you know, you don't have any right to do that. And Jack said, it was the right thing to do he said you know i didn't i didn't want to give him the chance to miss the putt and it wasn't really a missable putt and uh you know we ended up keeping the cup and it was just the, the, that's the way you play the game and snee said not where i come from but you know it was it was hailed it was made such a bigger deal than it was It was just a two footer. It wasn't that big a thing. It was, you know, it's so much a bigger thing now than it was at the time. Nobody even like said anything about it at the time. It was, it was a two footer. You can give that. You no big deal. So, to your point, it's a
0: bigger deal now than it was at the time. If you know, flash forward to you know this day and age. If the U.S. happened to be in possession of the cup, and the same scenario sort of played out today, say Ricky Fowler conceded a similarly linked putt to Rory McElroy, and the U.S. would retain the cup, is it a big deal now?
1: I would feel the same way about it. I I would have thought it'd be pretty cool, actually, um, you know, and totally in the spirit of golf, to give a guy a putt that's good. Now, you know, if it's iffy you don't give it. You know, 30 inches is a lot different than 18 to 24. You know, And 18 to 24 is a lot different than 12 to 18. So it really depends what it is. I mean, you know, you can have some two footers that scare you to death that you could three putt. You know, you can also have an 18 incher that's scary, but you know, if it's a gimme, a legitimate gimme, you know, don't see any problem with giving the putt? No, I, I would see that well within the bounds of the game. Now, I wouldn't be given three-footers during the match or anything crazy like that. You know, in match play right. sometimes, you, sometimes you might give a guy a three-footer early in the round and not make him putt a tough one. And then on the 14th hole, he's got a three-footer, and he thinks you're not going to make him putt it. You do make him putt it, and his system wasn't quite ready for it. That's a little bit different because that's in the, the strategy game. But for Ham on the last green and not a, a non-missable putt, but it's so easy to argue the other way. You know what? If it's not missable, let him just go ahead and not miss it. You know, that's why, you know, the horse the horse is favored. But let's let him run anyway and just make sure that the guy is supposed to win-win. So you could easily argue, why don't you just go ahead and tap that in, dude?
0: <laughs> right you know, Peter like I said at the top you're you're the preeminent golf historian and you you joined me earlier this year when we interviewed uh Billy Casper and I know you and Billy are good friends he won 51 times on tour including three majors but when people are talking about the greatest players of all time his name doesn't come up enough is he the most underrated golfer of all time do you think
1: well that that very certainly is the case you know it's funny I was just uh Doing some stuff with Jim Thorpe. He won three times on the PGA Tour. He won 13 times on the Champions Tour. You know, he's exempt for life out there. He had some tax issues that cost him some time away from his family. And we were sitting the other day and we were doing a couple of online TV shows. And I said to him, Who were the greatest putters that you ever putted with? And he said, Billy Casper was the best, and and I stopped him right there and said, you know, talk to me about it. And he said it was just the most unbelievable thing. He said, he said he used to chop down on his putt so that the the club like finished in the ground, like like the ball would finish, the club would finish in the sand if you were hitting a ball that was buried. He said he just hit straight down on the thing, and he said, but the pace of the putt was always such that it seemed to be looking for the hole he said he said he said his ball just and he said and his ball always went a little further than you thought it was going to go and he said and it never didn't get there they were dying but they weren't dying in the front of the hole they were dying so that he used the entire hole he said so I've seen a lot of his putts go in the back because it was moving at just the right speed to fall in ultimately somewhere and he knew how to use the whole four and a quarter inches. Um, You know, I talked to Arnold about it and uh, I said, you know, tell me about Billy Casper. And he said, let me tell you, he said, when Casper had a chance to win a golf tournament, he said he won the golf tournament. He said, when I looked at the leaderboard, he said, I looked for two names. Really he said, I looked for Jack and I looked for Billy Casper because I knew that could be trouble and he said, and Casper was the greatest at taking out a driver starting on the 12th hole when he had a one-shot lead or was close to lead. And just start hitting these, these cuts of 235 yards, just putting those little cut balls into play from at 235 yards. And then relying on the rest of his game, which was, you know, absolutely world-class, obviously, and among the best ever um, to get him in the hole. But he was great at putting it in play. You know, he won... The 51 times he won on the regular tour, um, he hit he hit a, he hit a cut, and then when he won the 10 times on the Champions Tour, he hit a draw. I mean, it was a completely different golf swing. I mean, you know, talk about good pair of hands. And Casper was another one of those guys who was really tough. You know, he went into the service early. I think he lost parents early. He was really on his own by the time he was eighteen or twenty. He was down in the San Diego area. Uh, he, he, you know, began to play golf in his teams, Picked up the game quickly, as all the great players did. Nobody, nobody went from just learning to play the game to being a ten in two years and then working it down. I mean, either it happens or it doesn't happen. You know, you're not slowly going to plus five from a ten. And so he picked the game up quickly, became a really fine player, started winning a lot of local stuff. But he, too, was very hard inside as a competitor. You know, friendliest, sweetest man that ever walked the face of the earth with not an angry bone or any rage in his body. And you uh, get the most giving guy. But as a competitor, he was really, really tough. He scared Trevino to death, you know. From 65 through 70, he won more tournaments individually than Jack, Arnold, or Gary won over that same time period. So the thing I think about Billy's record is he's underrated because he didn't win enough majors. You know, the 51 PGA Tour events is off the charts, top 10, but... Three majors isn't all-time great stuff. You know, to me, five majors is the number. So it's a very delicate thing when you talk about Billy, because on the one hand, you say he's one of the greatest players of all time, one of the greatest putters of all time, as evidenced by his tournament record. But as a major championship, there's a disappointment there. So I think he's underrated because people don't know about the 51 I think he's less appreciated, not underappreciated, but less appreciated than he might be because he didn't win enough majors that by themselves would have put you in the all-time category.
0: Right. All right. Now, I mean, I've listened to many of your interviews, and like I say, you've interviewed absolutely everybody who is a prominent figure in the game of golf. I was listening recently to your interview with Tom Weiskopf, and you asked Tom about the day that you know, everyone sort of found out that you know Arnold knew that Jack was going to take over as the best player in the world. Tom Weisskopf had a kind of front row seat, if you will, walking with Arnold and Jack. Do you mind telling that story?
1: No, not at all. In uh, 1962, uh, when Jack was uh, 22 and uh, Arnold was 32. You know, that was uh an incredible moment in golf because two years prior in nineteen sixty at the US Open, you had sort of the last Harav Hogan who hit thirty four consecutive greens on that last day, the double open day on Saturdays that after sixty four they didn't have any more. Hit thirty four greens and hit one in the water on seventeen, but He could have won the Open again, but he didn't win the Open again, and that was the last that we heard of him. So it was the end of Hogan. It was the introduction of Nicholas, because in 1960, as a 20-year-old. Weisskopf thought that when Nicholas was 20, that Nicholas was the best player in the world, literally. And so it was the introduction of Nicholas, because he could have won that tournament, only finished a couple of shots behind Arnold, but he was a 20-year-old amateur. And Arnold Birdie, six of the first seven holes, to uh, go ahead and, and win the Open from seven back in the final round, the second round of the Saturday in the double Open round. So that that was the coronation in some ways, or certainly, you know, the, yes, it was the coronation of Palmer because he had just won the Masters a couple of months before, finishing 3-3-3. Now here he is burning six of the first seven, and shooting 65 to win the U.S. Open. He's now the king. Now you go two years down the road, Weisskopf's still a student at Ohio State, he's a spectator at the U.S. Open at Oakmont, and he said that everybody got to the first tee, and, you know, this was, you know, like 30 minutes from where Arnold actually lived and where he was from. I mean, he was, you know, Western Pennsylvania, I mean, come on, Oakmont's in Pittsburgh, and so Arnold was you know the king. There wasn't anybody in the crowd rooting for Jack Nicholas, you know, except for his wife literally and <laughs> that week Jack had on uh Jack wore the same pants every single day, including the pay up playoff they were a pair of green iridescent pants with that were so tight on him that the lining of the front pockets was like coming out i mean it was you know they were really <laughs> unattractive. And he, you know, and he was unattractive at the time. He had the crew cut, and he, you know, and he was pretty heavy, and you know, and he he wasn't a guy who smiled. He had, you know, a very serious look on his face. So they get to the first tee, and uh, they introduce uh, they introduce Jack, and they and they, they introduce Arnold, and everybody goes completely crazy. And Arnold, you know, waving at the crowd and smiling and twinkling his eyes. And the first hole at Oakmont, you hit like over a little, like a little hill at the end of your drive, and your ball kicks down the hill a little bit. And so Arnold hits first and absolutely crushes it right down the middle, and everybody's screaming and cheering. And he said, then they introduced Jack, and he said nobody clapped, it couldn't have been more quiet. Somebody said Fat Jack, somebody said Boo, and Jack gets up and absolutely crush Jobs one. So Weiskopf, at this point, is working his way down to where he can see where their balls are. And he uh, and he gets down and measures off that Nicholas has outdriven Arnold by 34 yards. So he scurries back to just a, below the rise so he can see Arnold's reaction when Arnold comes over the little rise in the first fairway to see where the two balls are. And he said, and Arnold's walking and hitching his pants and all that sort of stuff. And he said, and then Arnold gets to the top of the rise and looks down and sees the two balls. And he said, and he just, everything just went limp, that his shoulders sagged, that he sagged, that he became shorter, that he became 10 years older in two minutes. And and Weiskopf strongly felt that Arnold knew at that very moment that it was over, that that his brief reign that started arguably in 58 um, would have therefore officially turns out in historical terms to have ended at uh, at, the, at the Masters Tournament in 62. Now, you have to be fair and mention that right after Arnold lost that U.S. Open playoff to Jack, uh, he would go ahead and win the British Open and he would win one more Masters. So he still had two majors in him. So, You know, was the mantle passed exactly that moment? Maybe it was a few months later, because Arnold then won another major, you know, two seconds later. But that was pretty much the end of the run, and, you know, and Jack would just go on a wild tear. So um, that day uh, proclaimed the new king, or real close to new king, and the end of a very brief reign by a guy who turns out to be the most popular player in the history of the game. And Tom went on to tell me that he said, you know, even when Jack was hitting three-wood, he was, you know, where Arnold was with his driver and that he used a lot of three-woods and he said, oh, he said the other thing was he said Arnold hit a really good iron shot into the first green and then Jack hit a better iron shot into the first green and he said that's the way the thing went all day and I think the final tally was 69-73, 69-73, but it didn't feel that close. Jack had a, a pretty sizable lead around the eighth hole and, and just started to extend it. And in those days, they did stuff like they would get to a par four on the front side and each hit a big drive. and you know, And, and Arnold would be away by a few yards and hit one iron to 20 feet and Jack would hit one iron to 18 feet, you know, and one of them would make and one of them would miss, but one irons and two irons and three irons to 20 feet and stuff. I mean, you know, just incredible, incredible golf. And don't I, I hate when people start talking about the old inferior equipment. There was nothing wrong with it whatsoever. There was nothing wrong with it whatsoever. The balls weren't made of mush. I mean, Bobby Jones <laughs> didn't... I mean, Bobby Jones didn't win 13 of the last 21 majors he played in because the ball was mush and his balls were less mushy than somebody else. It was like, what are you talking about? I mean, the, the, the equipment from 1900 was serviceable. I mean, once they invented in 1899 the Haskell golf ball, the first ball to use rubber windings, which is the precursor of the ball that we use today. You know that was really the, the the first modern ball, and everybody said, you know, the golf courses are going to become obsolete because of this golf ball, and you know that's always been an issue. But the equipment was just fine when I was growing up. The equipment was just fine. There was you never had a ball fall out of the. You know, it, it just all of that <laughs> stuff is so overrated in terms of. You know, how did they do it with the old persimmon? Because it worked for 575 years until the last 25 years. So that's why you hit it with that with that kind of material. And the balls did work. I mean, Titleist balls worked well then as well as they work now. So I don't buy the whole, you know, changes in equipment thing. But um, certainly when you can hit, you know, anybody looks at a one iron now from 1960 or 1970 and you try to hit that, You've got to be someplace to hit a one-iron in the 1970s. I remember that that was a club that you naturally had in your bag, and then later you didn't. But a one-iron, was just you just had it in your bag. If you could break 80, you, you had a one-iron. And uh, those guys hit one-iron to 20 feet, and now a guy hits a wedge to 20 feet, and we call it a great shot. So, yes, that was a, <laughs> a, a huge moment in golf history. So,
0: speaking of equipment, you, you interviewed Sam Snead. And Mister Sneed used to break branches off trees and make them into clubs, right?
1: Maple, right? Had to be maple, maple or hickory. And he hickory won golf was hard tournaments. Hard to get a hold of. What's that?
0: Right? He he would win golf tournaments playing with those with you know branches of trees that he formed into golf clubs and put grips on, right?
1: I would say that was an exaggeration that that has come to us over time. You know, he hit golf balls and played rounds of golf with a club that he would have fashioned from a branch, but he wasn't actually winning professional tournaments with a club that he fashioned by his hands from a from 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 a piece of wood. You know, and it's funny because Stuff like that, those stories, you know, that people take as gospel, there's an incredible number of those, and some of them actually happen to be true. And that's the interesting thing about Sam Sneed is there's so many things that are legendary and a number of them that may or may not be true. Now, we know he liked Hickory and Maple. We know as a young man that he hit shots with it. We know when he went to Africa on a safari and on an exhibition tour, when they were on safari, he made a club out of a branch and they would hit um, elephant dung, and he was the one who figured out that you looked for a piece of dung that had a hard outer part to it so it wouldn't break up at impact. And part of the reason that he was hitting shots down there is because he never went more than two weeks in his whole life without hitting golf balls, and Byron Nelson could go two weeks and then win the next golf tournament he played without hitting a golf ball. So... They were really different in terms of how much t- tending they needed to to, to fine tune their games. But uh, Snead uh, Sneed was incredible. He, you know, with that club that you mentioned, that you know, he may have played some tournament golf with, but I don't think first class PGA tournament golf with, but tournament golf with, he worked out his swings so that the ball wouldn't go to the right because there was a ditch on the right in their property in their backyard, and they would lose balls if the balls went into the ditch. So he learned to curve them the other way. He learned to hit a draw because he wanted to save the golf balls. And, again, that was stuff that he would cut down from trees initially until he got golf clubs. But here's another example of a guy who was ridiculously long with the inferior equipment. You know, in his, you know, in in the mid-30s when he was in his early 20s, I mean, at you know, at uh, Sulphur Springs and courses in Virginia and West Virginia, he was regularly hitting 300 yard drives. And regularly, there were a lot of 300 yard holes in those days. and average drive was a little over 200 yards. And, you know, Byron Nelson and Bobby Jones were hitting at 250. Jones could hit it longer when he chose to. But Sneed was ridiculously long and could hit the ball 300 yards under, you know, normal conditions and not to be downwind on a hard fairway. Um, and he hit a draw, but it was kind of a pull draw. 'Cause he came over the top slightly and the ball started slightly left and he would aim he would aim way right and he would come over it a little bit and he would hit a little bit of a pull draw which went a long way. Um but he uh he was unbelievable. He uh I don't know if I can tell you the story. I guess I could tell you this story. When Sam was in his very early eighties and my youngest son was then seven I did a TV show with Sam, and we got into the back of his limousine and drove to Sam Sneed's Tavern. And he wondered whether at Sam Sneed's Tavern they had chili. And I said, well, yeah, it's your tavern. You know they have chili. And he said, but I don't like it with beans. I said, well, there's no beans in the chili at Sam Sneed's Tavern because you don't like beans in your chili. So anyway, we're sitting in the car, and he looks at my seven-year-old son, and he tells him the following joke. He said, one night the man came home, and he got into bed with his wife, and they were fooling around for a little bit, and Sam made all kinds of noises that the wife was supposedly making as the husband was in bed (laughs) with her, all kinds of crazy, woo, and ha, and he said, so the man finally got out of bed, and he went into the bathroom when he got into the bathroom, his wife was in the bathroom. So he said to her, how did you get in here? And she said to him, shh, you're going to wake up, mother. (laughs) So my seven-year-old son was never the same after that.
0: (laughs) Imagine that.
1: Kept, Kept looking at Sam, kept looking at me, trying to figure out what was going on. And then... Sam got nasty and started to tell stories that you wouldn't tell to a grown-up, let alone a seven-year-old, and thankfully we eventually ended up at Sneed's Tavern. But he was a great guy. I mean, you know, he used to tell me that he used to catch fish by hand as a kid, and I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, you you just tickle them in the belly, and he said, then they'll lay on their side and go to sleep, and you just lift them out of the water. And I said, oh, okay, that's how you do it. Just tickle him <laughs> on the belly. Okay. I got that. Uh, he at eighty he could still stand still and take one leg and kick the top of a door jam three feet above his head. Wow. He could uh still shoot in the sixties in his very, very early eighties. I'll tell you what, I mean when I, when Tommy Bolt, who was a great friend of Sam's needs and was only four years apart and Tommy won the fifty eight US Open and he's a World Golf Hall of Famer. When he was in his early 90s, he could still break 70. I used to play with him at Black Diamond in, uh, in in western Florida. And uh, he, uh, at, at 90, 91, he could only get his hands hip high in the backswing and pretty much hip high in the through swing. He could still hit at 240 at the age of 91. Wow. He hit it 240 with the shortest swing you ever saw every single ball was exactly in the middle of the club face like if you look he had a lot of drivers in his bag and if you looked at any of the drivers there was only one mark or appeared to be only one mark on any of his clubs because it was ball was always hit in the same place and i remember rounds with him where he would hit 16 or 17 greens at 90 or 91 6400 yards not 61 6400 yards and uh basically never miss a fairway. I don't know that I ever, I played, I bet I played 70 rounds with him. I don't know that I ever saw him hit a bunker shot. I don't think I ever saw him in a bunker. And he very rarely chipped. He, he, he hit all the greens. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, like he would have, it was really funny, he would have a straightforward 20-foot chip from a good lie, slightly uphill, no break, nothing to think about. And he'd put his hands on his hips and and have that butt of the club in in his hand, and he'd look down at it, and he'd look at you, and he'd shake his head mournfully, and he'd say, man, I've never had a chip shot like this before. And I'd be looking at it going, I've never saw anything so straightforward as the chip shot he's got. And I said, you've had 10,000 of these. And he said, man, I've never seen a shot like this before. And then he'd chip it in and go, boy, that was a tough one. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, you do that all, you know, but he, but he never had to chip. I mean, I, I, I can remember them all. There were so few of them. I remember we were playing the second hole at black diamond and he was just on the, like maybe two feet short of the green. And it was a long green. He had, he, he needed, he needed to have hit another couple of clubs and the pin was on the back shelf and it was a very small shelf and the back of the green ran away down a hill and so i said to him you know what's really the right way to play this shot and he said Well, you fly it to the top of the ledge and then you let it trickle down the last few feet and i said but that's i said you're talking about a you know, i said you're like 30 yards 25 yards i said you're talking about a landing area you know the size of a hula hoop and he said well even a little smaller son and He would then go ahead, and with a sand wedge, he didn't like the lob wedge very much, He, uh, with a sand wedge, he would just go ahead and take those magnificent hands of his, and that ball would come up so soft and so high, and he'd land it right at the top of the ledge, and it would trickle down six feet and fall into the hole, and he'd wipe his brow with the back of his left hand and say, tough shot, boy. I played (laughs) with him... (laughs) I played with him the last round that he played, to my knowledge. We played together at Black Diamond. We were playing the nine-hole, I think it was called, the Highland course. And we got to the, he was the greatest five-wood I He was so unbelievable with the five-wood. It was out of this world. From 165 to maybe two. Ten or two fifteen, even he could really hit it. He would hit it very far, but he had like a fifty-yard range with his five wood. You name the shot, he could hit that shot as though it were a pitching wedge that you could easily curve. It was insane. If the pin was back right, and he, you know, and he was, you know, and, and on a sixty-four hundred-yard course, hitting a two forty, you're going to have a bunch of five woods. And he, if the pin was back right. And, and the green sloped towards the pin, he would go ahead and land something on the first third of the green and let it just run back. If the thing was perched on a little thing, he would hit a high cut. If the If the pin was right in the front of the green, he would hit a medium-high shot that did not move in any direction whatsoever. When he wanted to hit a straight ball, it did not move. Front pin left, big, high, soft draw. Whatever the shot called for. If it was supposed to release, if it was supposed to carry, if there was a shelf that you needed to land it on, he could do that with a five-wood, and he would do it every single shot. It was not like every once in a while you'd go, wow, I bet he was a really great player. One, None of that. He did not miss shots. He did not miss shots whatsoever. And we were playing the ninth hole in the Highland course, and it was a five-wood par three, and he hit it t- like 25 feet right and a little underneath the hole. He had an uphill right to lefter, Knocked in the putt for two. And he was a great putter. That was your thing. He was a great putter. He never left himself anything. Anything, anything, anything. You always hit the ball back to him, even if you were in a match with him, because forget what we talked about with Tony Jacklin. He didn't have two-footers. He had two inchers. He was like Nicholas. He rolled the ball dead, 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 dead to the hole. You He never had any work left. you very rarely see him sweat over a three-footer or anything like that, and he made all those anyway, and he was a good putter for birdie, but, you know, you're hitting five-wood all the time. You're not going to hit it 12 feet all the time, but still, she was shooting par. I mean, the man was shooting par in his 90s, and so he knocks in the putt for wow. two, and he looks at me and he goes son that's the last round for old dad glad you could be here to watch it boy and right after that i knew his wife was taking him to arkansas now he lived 90 minutes from me and she was taking him to arkansas to some reservation or some weird thing you know and i knew he was going to live out his life there and we were never going to see each other again and I was so upset, and I gave him a big hug and kissed him on the cheek and said, "You know, we're not, I'm not going to see you." And he said, "No, we'll be together, boy. We'll be together again." And and I never saw him again. And uh, I spoke to him once or two more times. I should have called him more. I didn't. You know, I wasn't good about that. It's bad, bad thing. I I should have called him more. You know, I, uh, after I after we didn't see each other anymore. But about a year and a half later, he passed away right around labor day and right after that his wife mary uh mary ann called me and sent me one of tommy's uh you know hats he wore the sort of ben hogan style white hat and she sent me a couple of other odds and ends of his and uh but he was uh, a a great great wonderful guy when when we used to finish around and he'd go into the clubhouse he would order a cabernet sauvignon is what he would ask for, <laughs> and uh, he was a beauty. And he'd be in all purple and white, and the white hat and the purple pants and the white shirt and the purple sweater over his shoulders and white shoes and purple socks. I mean, he was, you know, and he was a, and he looked great in clothes too. He was, and everything was like beautifully, beautifully tailored. and he, like, he was like six two or six three, and clothes looked great on him. And he always maintained a really good figure and. Uh, Yeah, he'd just walk in a room. We used used to have a surprise birthday party for him every single year, so he knew that there was going to be a surprise birthday party for him every single year. I mean, literally like 80 through 90, like 10 straight years. And we would do it the same way every time. It would be at Black Diamond where he lived in in, uh, west central Florida, and he would show up pretending to come in for dinner to the clubhouse, and he would look like a billion dollars when he walked in, beaming and smiling. And I always said to him, "You're supposed to act surprised." And he would come in, smiling, shaking everybody's hands. The room would be full of 150 people, and then we'd have a little dais set up with with two chairs and a microphone and a glass of water for him. And he would just walk straight to the dais, and I'd be sitting there, and we'd hook him up to the to the microphone and And then we'd just start to talk, and we'd do like 30, 40 minutes together. And I would make him tell, you know, all of his great stories. And uh, a few of those we taped, but it was just hilarious. Every year we would pretend that he didn't know. And I think every year we called it his 80th birthday party. We never went past 80. (laughs) He told us some great stories that when he first started to play, and like when he was 10 years old and just learning to play, that they used to take these hickory shafts, (laughs) and they would swell up if it was humid outside and that they used to take the broken Coca Cola bottle edges and scrape the shafts until they could get it down to the to the right size again, which I always thought <coughs> was very cool, excuse me. And in yeah. World War Two he had this idea in World War Two that he should be the special assistant to the head general in Rome in charge of golf for officers, <clears throat> and they decided to give him the title. So he goes over to Rome. He's in the Army. Excuse me one second. Excuse me, I just had to golf. He's in the Army, and his job is to play golf every single day. And, and you know, he said, I saw Mussolini in town all the time. He said he didn't want to work on his game. I could never tell if he was kidding about that. But he said he saw him. <laughs> He wasn't kidding about seeing Mussolini, but the thing about the golf, I always half-wondered if he met the guy, but I didn't want to know the answer, so I never asked him. And (laughs) So he played golf every single day, worked on his game, and won a zillion dollars playing, well, a zillion lira, playing cards and dice in Italy. And he won so much money that he had to buy a trunk to put the money in so when he went back to the US he took the trunk with all the money on the boat and there were some sailors on the boat who were more adept at cards and dice than he was and they had shaved dice and you know cut cards and he lost the trunk and he lost all the money by the time he got home and wow. uh but he was he, he was a carpenter and so he did some carpentry and then he started to play and then he turned out to be a super player and Ben Hogan changed his grip a little bit, and, you know, he won the 58 U.S. Open at Southern Hills, and he was from Oklahoma where Southern Hills is. And he said to me, man, he said, that first day we went out there, and he said it was 100 degrees and 100% humidity, and he said, man, all those dudes were just wilting. And he said, I birdied the first two holes, and I said, I wonder who's going to finish second. And he said, then when I came to the 72nd hole, he said, I hit my drive, and he said, the ball was a couple of feet below my feet. And he said, but I took out that five wood, and I sailed that. I took that five wood out of the saxie, and I sailed that Jesse right into the middle of the green, just like I was supposed to. And uh, I never forgot him telling me that. He was uh, He was a fantastic guy, as was Sneed, who you first asked me about.
0: Right. No, fantastic stories. Peter, before we let you go, one more thing I wanted to, to get to was not only are you the voice of golf and probably the greatest historian for the game of golf on the planet, but from a voiceover perspective, one of the things that has captured me is the work that you did for HBO Sports on the When It Was a Game 2, the baseball movie. Talk about that and what that experience was like for you.
1: Well, there was When It Was a Game and When It Was a Game too. And, um, I was, I was working on wall street as a marketing guy and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really like it. I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't really care about that business, but I was living in New York and I sort of drifted into that, into that business. And I woke up on my 35th birthday and I said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to do something else. So people had said things to me about my voice, and I had done a lot of acting in college and in high school, and I dabbled in com- plays in community theater, and I, you know, so acting was fun for me. And the work that I did on Wall Street was really to give presentations on products, and so, you know, like the chance to get on a deal like an HBO movie or a Courtyard Marriott, you know, you get you put money in, you own an interest in a hundred Courtyard Marriots, those kind of things. So I was comfortable talking in front of a crowd and learned how to do that. And and I I said, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. And I thought, okay, I'm going to teach myself how to do voices for commercials and stuff. So I went to a voiceover class, and there was 19 girls in the class and me. And they were all <laughs> actresses, all beautiful actresses. And I was thinking, if I could be with one of them for a year, which one would I pick? So I was very, very distracted during the the voiceover class, but I very quickly figured out in the first hour where they were going with with how you do them, and I never went back to the class again, and the girl didn't, didn't come home with me. And I taught myself how to start to do voices properly, and a friend of mine worked at HBO Sports, got me an audition for the people who actually made the show, which was a company called Black Canyon Productions, who then you know, made the show with h b o sports. I auditioned, I read the script, they called me six months later, I read it again, They called me six months later, and they said, "Okay, now we're doing it for real, and you're gonna be the voice of this of this documentary and the documentary came out in July of ninety one and the day it came out, it was this huge cult hit, like right away, and they called me from h b o sports and said, "Oh, it's a huge hit. Would you be the voice of h b o sports and I said, "Yeah, you're kidding, who wouldn't want to do that?" And the guy who hired me introduced me to another guy at HBO Sports who ended up hiring everybody for the Golf Channel. So he knew I had a decent voice, but he knew I knew a lot about golf, which was a lot more important than having a nice-sounding voice. And that's how I got the job at the Golf Channel, was through narrating when it was a game and when it was a game, too, which were fantastic experiences watching the footage and narrating. It was so easy to get lost in the footage that you forget to do the narrating. So it was an incredible experience.
0: No, and you did an incredible job on both of those. It's a, uh, it's certainly both of those documentaries are two of my favorite films of all time, not just because of the, you know, the footage and you talk about how great that footage is and it is every bit as spectacular as you, as you allude to, but the way that you actually make that feel nostalgic and important is absolutely outstanding so kudos to you for for
1: that as well thanks buddy good being with you today
0: yeah it's been outstanding peter thank you so much for for joining me for the whole hour you are absolutely outstanding tell our listeners how they can continue to follow you whether that's online or over social media and listen to you know all of the interviews that you have done throughout the course of your career
1: well, I think the only place where there's some interesting stuff right now would be the Peter Kessler show on iTunes where essentially I've taken 75 so far of the best interviews each of which is about 45 minutes from the old days, from recent days, but it's interviews with the best players of all time and um, I've, you know, cold them down to be workable in a, you know, straight radio radio listenable format. And you can find those on iTunes. Those are pretty good. I'm I'm close to doing a couple of things with some other folks that could be a lot of fun and could put me on camera again, which one I would really enjoy. I'm not quite there yet because nothing's quite organized yet. But hopefully there'll be a couple of cool things on the horizon. But it's I, I got to tell you, it's always really, really good to come on the show. You ask the best questions. You are really intelligent. You really know your golf. You're really complimentary to your guests. You know how to make your guests feel comfortable. Kudos to you. You're really, really, really good at what you do. Enjoy being with you. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate you saying that, and I I can't tell you how much
0: uh, I enjoy every opportunity to to share the airwaves with you. You're the greatest interviewer and the greatest storyteller in my mind of all time. I can't tell you how much you've meant to me as a mentor and as a uh, true example for how it's done. Thank you for being here. Thanks, dude. Have a great, great day. All right. You too, Peter. Look forward to catching up with you soon. All the best to you and your family. Anytime you're ready. Thanks, Peter. Take care. All right, folks. Uh, it's almost time to put a bow on this one. Wow, what an outstanding hour. I tell you what, if you told me that I could spend an hour any way that I want to, uh, it would be listening to Peter Kessler share his stories. What a wonderful man and what a wonderful you know, you know, wit that he has, what a wonderful way of sharing stories that he has, an, an amazing array of stories. It, I'm telling you, folks, it just doesn't get any better than Peter Kessler. Before we close up shop, I want to let you know about a great new book that's out there. It's called A Golden 18, written by Roger Schiffman, and the photography is by one of our friends and one of the greatest photographers on the planet, Jim Mandeville. Jim, I'm sure you know, is the director of photography at the Nicholas Companies. The book showcases some of Mr. Nicholas's greatest course designs. The stories and the courses are great, and the photography is simply out of this world. In fact, they're so good, you're going to want a second copy of the book, so you can take some of those pictures out and frame them to get your copy go to nicholas.com and hover over the products and partners tab that you're going to see on the home page and then click on books and videos if you love golf and you love stunning photography you're going to absolutely go crazy over this book all right everybody it is time to put a bow on this episode my sincere thanks once again to peter kessler for being such a wonderful guest uh with me this morning and i can't thank you enough for tuning in you know we appreciate you guys the very most Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari, and our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Blog Talk Radio. And on Friday nights, you can find us from 8 to 10 Eastern Time on Boost Radio and on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We're joined every week by legends from around both the NFL and the CFL. Please also check out both shows on Facebook and give us a like. That's important to us, too. Uh, And you can find us online at, this show is nextonthetea.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archived episodes and keep up to date with who our future guests are going to be by going to our site. Again, thank you again for choosing to listen to the show today. We really appreciate it. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.
1: Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, a keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy Applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink, not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out, and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, a keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy Applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink, not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.